We are continuing our series of studies through the book of Jude with the title as Contending for the Faith. And uh, this evening's uh, title would be The Judgment Prophecy of Enoch. The Judgment Prophecy of Enoch. You know, just to have a quick review of what we did last week in verses 11 through to 13, we read, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. In, but in Jude 14 now today, you know, we find that you know, there's a, a reference back to Jude 4, which states that certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and denying our only master and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's referring back to this verse in Jude 4. And if you notice in Jude 8, he says again, these people, he uses the same phrase again in Jude 10. And in verse 11, it says, they walked in the way of Cain. Now Jude 14, as well as 17 later on, would indicate that. And again, he uses this phrase, it was about these men that Enoch prophesied. So, you know, Jude is referring back again and again to these certain persons who have crept in unnoticed. He's giving us more and more details about who they are, how they behave, and what's the punishment going to be, so that we can be careful when we see them within the church. We would be willing to contend for the faith. So he's giving all these details so that we would get more clarity about these certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, okay? So let's look at verse you know, 14 and 15 this evening, where it says it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, when you look at this verse, there are a couple of questions which will definitely come to our minds. Questions like, who was Enoch? Where does Jude get his information about Enoch's prophecy? When will the judgment spoken of occur? Who is the target of this judgment? And why is the judgment taking place? These are questions that we will address this evening as we go through these verses. Dr. John MacArthur, speaking about our society of today, he says, our society has become well insulated from the reality of hell. In fact, preachers don't preach about it. Writers don't write about it. Evangelists don't even necessarily warn about it. The culture thinks everyone is basically good 
And life after death, it's either happy and full of pleasure or it doesn't exist at all. Hell is neither politically correct, socially acceptable or even evangelical these days. We have become so comfortable with the absence of hell from our evangelism that our superficial gospel has no threats, no warnings about eternal torment and eternal suffering. But on the other hand, the Bible is very clear on the reality of hell, very clear on the reality of eternal punishment, very clear on the reality of eternal darkness. Scripture tells us that human history ends with God's judgment on, on all the ungodly. And that is what these verses are speaking of this evening. So let's get to this uh, in, uh, verses, you know, verse by verse. Okay. <clears throat> now, the accountability and condemnation is guaranteed. That is what these verses are speaking about, of this prophecy of judgment of Enoch against ungodly false teachers. What is the source of this prophecy? It is extra biblical because we don't have that reference in our scriptures. When he says, and also about these Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam prophesied saying, we don't have Enoch prophesying. We don't have that book in the scripture. We don't have any statements about this. Okay. Now, keep that in mind. We'll come to that. Now, when he starts off by saying, and about these, you know, it basically means that it's a conjunction word. It's a, a linking word, which indicates he's continuing to discuss this theme of judgment on the apostates. Okay, you know, if you notice, you know, in the previous verse, it said, black darkness has been reserved forever for these people. And he's saying, okay, he's continuing on about the judgment that was spoken of earlier, okay? So now we find about Enoch's prophecy. Enoch's prophecy. Where is this quotation from? This quotation is actually from the book of Enoch, okay? Now the book of Enoch was known to the fathers of the second century, was lost for some centuries with the exception of a few fragments, and was found in its entirety in a copy of the Ethiopic Bible in 1773. And it became known to modern students through a translation from this into English by Archbishop Lawrence in 1821. It was probably written in Hebrew. It consists of revelations purporting to have come from Enoch and Noah. Okay. Now that is you know, information about from where he got this information, where Enoch got this information. Or uh, when you're speaking about this prophecy where Jude got this information about Enoch. Now, what does the Bible say about Enoch? If you notice in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 to 24, we read about how Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, and then he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Not days, years. Enoch walked with God. 
and he was not, for God took him. Now, if you look at you know, the Genesis account of the lineage from uh, Abel and the lineage from Cain, lawlessness had climaxed in the time of Lamech, the seventh from Adam, in the line of Cain. But here we find that godliness has climaxed in seventh from Adam in the lineage of Enoch. Okay. Now, when the scripture also speaks about you know, Enoch being taken up so that he would not see death, some theologians see Enoch as a type of the rapture that will happen to saints at the time of Christ's coming. So they would speak about how Jude is referring to Enoch. He was taken up and that is what is going to also happen. When Christ comes in judgment, then the believers will be caught up. Okay, That is the reason why they would say that he is referring to Enoch over here. But the question will definitely be in the minds of people. Should Jude quote from non-biblical sources? Should he quote, you know? If he's writing scripture, should he quote from non-biblical sources and put it in scripture? Okay, that's a question that you know, people may have. You know, but remember, he does not call it as scripture. Okay, he's only quoting from that. If you notice, just as much as in the Old Testament, we have other books, Book of Jasher and Book of the Different Different Kings, you know. Different books' names are mentioned as it is written, you know, but the Bible doesn't say that those books are scriptural. Similarly, even Paul quotes from non-canonical writers, you know, with statements, you know, for example, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, he would say, we are also his children, where he quoted one of the philosophers on Mars Hill, where he spoke that sermon. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not a scripture passage. That is, again, a quotation from a philosopher. Or in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, where he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, you know, lazy gluttons. Now, again, this was a quote. So even though this prophecy is not recorded in the Old Testament, Obviously, the Spirit of God has inspired Jude to use it, okay? Maybe because it was a familiar saying at that time. Maybe it was because it was uh, spoken about and it is in keeping with what he is speaking about here, writing about here, about the judgment that is to come. So people were aware about it, you know, and as a result, he uses that as an example. <coughs> So just because Jude uses these writings doesn't mean that they should be considered scripture. We must be careful about that. Now, what does he say in that particular reference in Jude 14? He says, you know, behold, the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy angels to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four certainties of Christ's coming, he mentions. He says the Lord will come. He comes with his saints. He comes to execute judgment on the ungodly. And he comes to expose their sins. So he says these are certain. Judgment is certain as much as he is going to come to execute this judgment. This is the truth of scripture. Okay. So let's look at that particular section about this judgment or the execution of judgment. 
where he says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. He starts off by saying, Behold. Jude uses this word to cause us to focus our attention on this announcement that he is making. Charles Spurgeon says that behold is a word of wonder. It is intended to excite admiration. Wherever you see it hung out in scripture, it is like an ancient signboard signifying that there are rich wares within. So every time you see this word behold, stop and find out, hey, what is coming up after that? Now, also, if we notice, it says the Lord came. It is not that the Lord will come, but it says the Lord came, which is an aorist active indicative. This is the, the Greek tense of the aorist tense. It is not will come, future tense, but came, past tense. So we see that the word came is an aorist tense, but in this context describes an event that is yet in the future. Now, why does he use this tense? He is using this tense because he is so certain that Jude describes it as a, a past tense, that it has happened already. Even before it has happened, he is so sure that this is going to take place. So when the judgment is spoken of as the Lord came, it is a certainty beyond a shadow of doubt. God is going to bring about judgment upon these apostates who are trying to lead people away. But you and I need to be careful. We must be discerning people. We should also be willing to contend for the faith and not give up or water down the faith. Okay. Now, Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 16 speaks about you know, how the Lord will come. Where he says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And verse 16 says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Very clear. The Lord comes to judge the earth. The Lord comes to execute judgment you know, with the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And the Bible also says that he comes with many thousands of his holy ones. Many thousands of his holy ones. Revelation 19.14 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The Lord comes with the thousands of his holy ones. That's where the judgment comes in. Rapture is when the believers are caught up and when he comes together with the saints, that is where it is spoken of here. Now, why does he do this? To execute judgment, to execute judgment. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment, the Bible says, that God has prepared for these apostates. And we must be sure that this is not a, an imagination. We must be sure that this is an execution of judgment that God has pronounced will take place. And as a result, we need to be careful with our lives that we don't yield to these false apostles and follow after them because then the judgment of God would be also upon us. <laughs> okay. Now, the Lord says he's going to judge, you know, to uh, bring about, execute judgment. Okay. Now, what is he going to, uh, on what basis is he going to judge these individuals? You know? There's the accountability and the condemnation that is guaranteed for what? For ungodliness. For ungodliness. If you notice, it says the accountability for ungodliness and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, if you notice, even when we read that passage, I'm sure two words would have in you know, us stood out. One is the word all. The second word is the word ungodly. So basically saying all ungodly, all ungodly people, all ungodliness is definitely going to be punished. So when he says, and to convict them, <coughs> the word that is used there for convict means to expose or to rebuke or to prove guilty, which includes showing someone his error. Okay. So <coughs> when it says to convict the verb this is the verb that he's using he says the lord is going to expose them it's going to make it all clear if in case a person says hey look here why should i be punished why should i be put in hell the lord says hey no this is what is going to happen because i'm going to expose okay now people today may be in a you know, sort of uh, hypocritical manner outside one inside another so that nobody knows but the Lord says when he comes for judgment, it is all going to be exposed so that they would be proven guilty. When Christ returns, the sins of the ungodly will be exposed and the verdict will be rendered accordingly. And the final sentence will be punishment in hell. A person who says he's a Christian, but he is not, it will be exposed. What is inside will be exposed. That is what the scripture is speaking about here. Two core reasons for their judgment. Two reasons for their judgment. <laughs> now, one is the ungodly deeds and the other is the ungodly words. Okay. Now, ungodly deeds and the ungodly words. Okay. Now, what do you mean by these two words? Now, denying God by their deeds. Denying God by their deeds. Titus 1, 15 and 16 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So the Lord is saying, what is He going to expose? He is going to expose their deeds. Okay, he is going to expose their deeds. Even though they profess to know God, their deeds are not really showing it because by their deeds they are denying Him. Secondly, they are denying God by their 
speech, by their speech. Matthew 12.36 says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. 12.34 again says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So what comes out of our lips, you know, that will show what is really inside of us. You remember when we do the, you know, did the study in the book of Malachi? Malachi gives a classic you know, example of these individuals, isn't it? <clears throat> in Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where God himself says, Your words have been arrogant against me. You have said it is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? These were harsh words. <coughs> that the people spoke. And this is what the judgment is going to come upon them for. <clears throat> their deeds are not showing, their words are not showing. All that they are speaking about, as we looked at last week, is only pushing themselves up, living only for themselves. Okay, So time and time again in that verse, if we notice four times, this word all comes in. All, 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 all. Four times. Okay. A.W. Tozer puts it across very clearly where he says, The wheels of God's judgment may grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. They may grind slow. You may look around at the people around and say, Hey, these guys are professing to be Christians and look at what they are doing. God is not punishing them. But don't worry, you know, it may grind slow, the God's judgment, but they definitely grind exceedingly fine and it will definitely take place. So let's look now at the word meaning of the word ungodly, you know, ungodly. It means basically irreverent, impious, violating norms for a proper relation to deity. Okay, the fourfold use of ungodly is used by Jude to emphasize the point that a characteristic of unbelievers and false teachers or apostates is a lack of proper respect and fear of God. Instead of reverence for God, they are irreverent. If they had proper respect and reverence for God, they would not do what they do, that's the deeds, and say what they say, that's what they speak. And that's what the meaning of ungodly is all about, showing a sense of you know, irreverence towards God, not necessarily, not holding him in high respect, but treating him you know, as if you know, it didn't really matter whatsoever. Okay? If there is one attribute of God that every Christian says they believe and yet implicitly denies in the way they live, it is God's omnipresence. We all say that God is you know, everywhere. He sees everything you do, hears everything you say, and knows everything you think. But do we really live in the light of this reality? Or do we live not really recognizing also that he is around, watching us, knowing what we are doing? That is also part of the sign of these false teachers. You know? No reverence for God, not recognizing that they are accountable to God, not recognizing that he is noticing what we are doing, taking account of that. So this evening, it's a good time to examine our lives to find out whether casualness has set in, whether we are living in the light of this reality of God's omnipresence 
or do we think that he's not around whatsoever? Let me sum up some of the characteristics that you know, is mentioned in this uh, prophecy of judgment in these two verses. Verse 14 spoke about it is sudden, behold. It is also going to be overwhelming because the Bible says the Lord will come with ten thousands of his holy ones. It is also going to be final because he is coming to execute judgment to convict the ungodly. It is also very focused where it says you know, to convict all the ungodliness, ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness. The focus is going to be on the ungodly and the ungodliness. It is also very inclusive where it says to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. It is also going to be very personal because it speaks about of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it's going to be a personal judgment. It's not just a random judgment. It's going to be a personal judgment. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, accountability. So we must live in the light of this reality. Present that he is there with us, watching, so be careful. And in the future, <coughs> to know that we are going to stand before him. Judgment. Our lives will be exposed, so be careful and live lives that are pure. Let's move forward and look at four fatal character flaws that he exposes in verse 16. Four fatal character flaws, where he says they are grumblers, okay, grumblers, you know, or we can put down that as an unthankful person, an unthankful person person. Okay, verse 16 says they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Okay, so if you notice, we find in verse 16 the types of things that apostates speak against God. Now, he said in verse 15, they speak arrogantly against God. Now, the type of what they speak, you know, is now exemplified or explained or elaborated in this verse, in verse 16, okay? Now, <coughs> when it says they are grumblers, they are grumblers. Now, grumblers is a very interesting you know, uh, word in Greek. In Greek, it says go gustes, you know, go gustes. Now, when you uh, pronounce that word itself, you know, it is like a, a grumbling word, isn't it? You know? But if you notice, this is not a loud grumbling. The word is used of the cooing of doves. It refers not to a loud outspoken dissatisfaction, but to an undertone of muttering. Now, if we have pigeons nearby and they all come in together and they all start cooing, it's not a big loud sound, but that's a very irritating sound. You know? That is the sound of the grumbling, an undertone of you know, muttering. And this is what the <coughs> children of Israel did, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, we find you know, Paul writing about them, says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. These happened to us as examples. Now, what did they do in the wilderness? You know, the last portion of that verse is, Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So the Lord says, take care. If you are grumbling against God, you know, it may not be loud noises, but you know, muttering inside, 
just as much as maybe the people in Malaki's time did it, or even people today did it, who are not satisfied with God, the Lord says, be careful. <laughs> if you have that attitude, you may easily give in to these apostates. You know, with their you know, nice words, you may follow after them, and as a result, be destroyed. The Lord says in Philippians chapter 2, you know, Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I do not run in vain, nor toil in vain. You know, so what is Paul saying? Oh, yeah, he, says, he says, everyday lifestyle, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Because if you do it without grumbling or dis disputing, it proves that you are a child of God. But if you do or constantly grumble, constantly mutter against God, be careful about it. That's one sign, okay? Number two, you know, they were always finding fault or they were judgmental, judgmental, okay? The word for finding fault, you know, is a compound word which means blamers of their lot, complaining of one's lot, discontented. It describes one who is perpetually discontent and satisfied. That's what we'll find when you look at the word study of that particular verse, okay? People who are constantly dissatisfied. People maybe will say, this is all your fault, not my fault, it's your fault, okay? Constantly finding fault, not willing to accept their mistakes, but only finding fault with others. <coughs> that attitude again will show that they are selfish individuals. Individuals who are not thinking about the other person, you know, individuals are only thinking about themselves. What does you know, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8 say? He says, Now that I want, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He says, This again is a sign of spiritual maturity. I have learned to be content with whatever circumstance I am. I don't sit and find fault, okay? Again, in 1 Timothy 6, 8, he says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Hebrews 13, 5 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, okay? For him, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, these apostates are individuals who have never content. They are always finding fault. But on the other hand, a person who is a believer, a person who is a mature individual, learns to be content. Third characteristic of these false teachers you know, is they are immoral, following after their own lusts. Immoral, following after their own lusts. Following after literally means to go from one place to another. And this word is used figuratively to describe a journey, you know, a journey that people take to gratify their own flesh. And this is always going to end in disaster. Some translation says, walk after their own lust. In other words, this is their lifestyle. 
That's what Jude is <laughs> writing over here. What are they following after? They are following after ungodly lust. Lust is a passionate craving, good or bad. And according to this context, obviously it is evil. And this explains why the apostates deny God's truth. They do not want God to tell them how to live. They want to satisfy uh, their own sinful desires. You know, they are their own authority. Remember again, you know, earlier we looked at that, isn't it? They are not willing to accept any authority. They are their own authority. And that is what lusting is all about. You know? A craving, a passionate craving. It may be for position. It may be for money. It may be for you know, sexual passions. You know? Any of these, you know, an intense craving, which is the grabbing attitude, is what lust is all about. And the only sure way to know the truth in the Bible is by obeying it. Luke 6.46 tells us, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? So an individual who says, I'm my own authority, you don't tell me, the Bible is not going to be the final authority. Be careful. Chances are or they are on the road to destruction. And fourthly, they are manipulative. They are manipulative. They speak arrogantly flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. <coughs> the meaning, the word study of the meaning of that word arrogant is excessive size, puffed up, swollen, extravagant, or haughty. Okay? Now, these are the grumblers who are finding fault. You know? They are individuals who are constantly puffed up in their thinking, and as a result, you know, they throw their weight around, you know, both by actions as well as by their words. And Jude is describing the characteristics of the false flattery that the apostates use to gain an advantage or captivate their audience. He calls their words literally swollen. Such words are used for only one purpose, manipulation. True compliments edify, but these false teachers utilize flattery to get the upper hand over their listeners by way of endearing themselves to their prospect. That is what is spoken of here when they say they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You know? They are big words they give, you know? flatter individuals. You know? What's the purpose? Not to tell the truth, but so that they will become their followers. We notice in 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 8, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 8, we find the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. That's the next slide where you speak about this king, you know, who tells you know, Jehoshaphat, you know, tell me, you know, is there anyone who will tell me the truth? You know? But he says, there is one guy who will tell the truth, but I don't like him. Okay? Now, why does he say that? Because he's not telling you know, words that will please the king. He's telling the truth. And that's what will happen in the last days. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. You know, it says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires 
and will turn away their hearts from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Okay. High sounding words make a great cover for false teaching, isn't it? It was Warren Worsby who made this statement. They impress people with their vocabularies and oratory, but what they say is just so much hot air. High sounding words. People use a lot of big words. Maybe they say, the, the Lord said, I had this dream, or in a, in a great interpretation as it were. But, you know, covered up, you know, it's a, a false cover for false teaching. They impress people with their words, but what they say is just false, uh, not falsehood or hot air. The Believer's Bible commentary you know, speaks about this and says, this is an accurate description of the words of many liberal preachers and false cultists. They are accomplished orators, holding audiences spellbound by their grandiose rhetoric, their erudite vocabulary attracts undiscerning people. What their sermons lack in content, they make up for in a dogmatic, forceful presentation. But when they are finished, they have said nothing. Have you tuned to any of the YouTube videos that are around, which will explain this very clearly? Accomplished orators holding audiences spellbound by grandiose rhetoric, but at the end of it, they have said nothing. Okay? The word that is used there for flattering in Greek is literally admiring faces. You know? It's you know, to flatter an individual, to say, hey, you, know, you are great, you are great. But the whole reason is in order to get their advantage. Like today we may use this phrase to curry favor, to curry favor, isn't it? No. The story is told of a man who was trying to explain the meaning of the word oratory. And he commented on this with tongue in cheek. This is what he said. If you say black is white, that's foolishness. But if, if while you say black is white, you roar like a bull, pound on the table with both fists, and race from one end of the platform to another, that's called oratory. Let me say that again. If you say black is white, that is foolishness. But if while saying, you know, black is white, you roar like a bull, pound on the table with both fists, and race from one end of the platform to another, that is oratory. And a lot of orators today, isn't it? And as a result, people are quickly swept off their feet just of how people express themselves, you know, loud words, you know, in a flamboyant in a, in a nature, great swelling words, okay. But the scripture tells us, be careful. So we should be willing, as Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If somebody comes and corrects us and say, hey, look here, this is what you are saying, but this is what the Bible is saying, you know, you know, don't say, who are you to tell me, you know, be willing to accept that, okay? And if a person comes around and you are listening to false, you know, teachings and, you know, they say, it's all okay, you know, go ahead, be careful again, okay? Let me conclude with some thoughts over here, thoughts that we can definitely pick up from these verses. Number one. Our true faith is shown by our deeds and words. The apostates' deeds and words reveal them to be 
false apostles. What do your deeds show? What do your speech show? The destiny of those who oppose God is one of eternal separation. It is certain and fixed by God. Okay, So we dare not oppose God. Be willing to obey what God tells us to in his word. Number three, expressing discontentment is ultimately grumbling and complaining about the giver of all things. So we don't say, no, it is, and I'm just expressing my feelings. No, grumbling is against God. Number four, everyone must guard against the natural inclinations to gravitate toward what we want to hear versus the truth. The natural thing is to hear what is in a, in a tickling to our ears, a, but don't do that. Guard against that so that we are open to hear the truth and we are willing to obey it. Five application questions this evening. Number one, how were such apostate false teachers as described in this passage able to creep into the large mainline denominations and take over so much territory? I've been noticed in the church today, you know, church then, church today. How has this happened that they have crept in and people were not aware of it? Chances are the others were not had their guards down. They are not willing to contend for the way. They allowed a little and little, little by little to creep in before they knew everything was gone. Secondly, second question, how can we give more weight to substance than style when evaluating spiritual leaders and those who profess to proclaim the word of God? What do you really give weightage to? Do you wait, give weightage to style or do you give weightage to substance? How can we do that? Number three, how serious is God here about judgment and punishment? How can people say that only the God of the Old Testament has a fire and brimstone com and a component? This is a thought that people have, that Old Testament God was a God of judgment, but the New Testament God is a God of love. No, no, no. New Testament speaks about uh, judgment. Old Testament also speaks about love. Number four, where do we exemplify some of the same traits of grumbling and complaining and finding fault and manipulating others that are characteristic of these false teachers. Can you look around at some of the false teachers and find out whether these things are true of them? And finally, number five, on a scale of one to ten, one being never and ten being constantly, how often do you think about the reality of God's ultimate judgment? One would be, I never think about it. Ten would be, I constantly think about God's judgment. Why do you think about frequently or infrequently? Why is it one or why is it closer to ten? What might change in your life if you maintained a truly biblical perspective of ultimate judgment? How will your life change? when you recognize the truth of God's judgment, which is so very clearly spoken of in these verses. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.